This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, there's a thoughtful meme floating around online. It says, quote, I hope my son is never the reason someone's daughter is questioning her worth, unquote. That may prompt the question, what parent wouldn't hope the same? But something happens with many boys, something our culture can't seem to control yet. The expression, boys will be boys, is a truism and a deep-seated one. The times, they may be changing, but many of us still hold it to be self-evident that the way of the world is for boys and men to misbehave, come what may. If that troubles you, if you seek ways to raise boys to reject toxic male behavior, to exhibit kindness and concern for others, and to be accountable for their actions, here is an excellent primer. Sonora Ja is the author of the memoir, How to Raise a Feminist Son, Motherhood, Masculinity, and the Making of My Family. Rebecca Solnit, who we featured recently on Speakers Forum, calls it, quote, a beautiful hybrid of memoir, manifesto, instruction manual, and rumination on the power of story and possibilities of family, unquote. Ja spoke recently with author Ijeoma Luo about the themes her book explores, including what research tells us, her personal stories of raising a son, and how to counteract common cultural, familial, and media messages that reinforce a toxically masculine status quo. Sonora Ja is a professor of journalism at Seattle University. Ijeoma Luo is the author of So You Want to Talk About Race and the recently released Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Town Hall Seattle presented this event at Town Hall Seattle, if only for the staff and guest speakers, on March 7, 2021, marking that date, a hopeful sign of progress. Town Hall's Ware Harmon introduced the program. Sonora Jha is an essayist, novelist, researcher, and professor of journalism at Seattle University. She's the author of the 2013 novel Foreign and was a contributor to 2020's Alone Together, a multi-writer collaboration that brought authors together to process the pandemic. 
um, in real time as it was occurring. And that event had its, I should say, that book had its launch right here on Town Hall's virtual stage. Dr. Jha's essays have appeared in several other anthologies, as well as the New York Times, the Seattle Times, The Establishment, and Dame. She grew up in Mumbai and has been chief of Metropolitan Bureau for the Times of India and contributing editor for East Magazine in Singapore. Beyond Seattle U, she teaches fiction and essay writing for Hugo House and the Seattle Public Library and serves on the board of Hedgebrook Writers Retreat. Ijeoma Luo is a writer, speaker, and self-proclaimed internet yeller. She is the author of the 2018 number one New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race, and the recently released Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Her work on race has been featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post, among many periodicals, printed and otherwise. Luo was named to the 2021 Time 100 Next list and has been twice named to the Route 100. Sonora Jaw's book, How to Raise a Feminist Son, Motherhood, Masculinity, and the Making of My Family, is the subject of this evening's discussion. This is an emotional night for us at Town Hall. If you've been watching our events throughout the pandemic, you'll probably notice this is the first time since last March we've hosted a Town Hall-produced program in the Great Hall. I can't think of a better way to invite you all back inside. Please join me in welcoming Ijoma Oluo and Sonora Ja. That's, that was a wonderful introduction, and I'm so excited to be talking with you about this book. Uh, and I would love, I guess, before we dive in, um, first, one thing I always want to point out, whenever we give land acknowledgments, that the Duwamish are still not a federally recognized tribe, so please support their efforts for recognition. Please go to Real Rent, Rent Duwamish um, and help support them. But now I want to talk about this amazing book. And I would love to start out actually because we, we sort of talked about this book before you started writing it. And I, I would love to actually see, you know, if we remember similarly um, how, how these conversations came about. Because I don't know if you know that that was the Hedgebrook trip when I, when I wrote Mediocre that began Mediocre. And we also talked about this book as well. Yes, uh, and I'm so, so happy that we're doing this together because I was just thinking of how perfect it is. We were, you know, dressed very differently when we were at Hedgebrook <laughs> and we were talking animatedly. And when I started to read me- uh, Mediocre, your first chapter, you talk about how the conversations uh, at the farmhouse table were about, um, you know, about men and, and mediocrity and the way we were, we were not able to get ahead and that, you know, they weren't letting us get ahead. And I was working on some chapters of this. So you were sort of like probing that question and I was probing this question of a mother and boyhood and boys of color. And we had, I, I remember we were talking way into the night and those were great conversations. And, you know, it's so hard to tease out like where, some, you know, ideas drop, but just the richness of those conversations. I think as women, as women of color in this time, it's just uh, so great to have those conversations that lead to these things. So mm-hmm. I remember definitely being so inspired by what you'd already done and what you were, because you just finished. Uh, so you wanted to talk about race and it had been launched and, you know, you were enjoying the glory of that, or at least I hope you were enjoying the glory <laughs> of that. And then we were... Uh, in this space of creating and look at, you know, what we did. This is amazing. And yeah, for people who aren't familiar, Hedgebrook is a writing retreat uh, for women to kind of take a break from all of the things that pull us away from being able to create. And it's a wonderful 
immersive experience. And we were both there together, along with some other absolutely amazing women. And it was, you know, I remember talking about, we were all talking about our projects, along with all of these dudes and all the problems we were having as writers <laughs> dealing with <laughs> yeah. these dudes. And it was in there that I had the inspiration for Mediocre. But then you emailed me, uh, you know, years later and said, hey, remember this conversation we had? Yes. Here, the book is almost done. And yeah. it, was, it was so exciting to yeah. see. And you were so gracious to agree to give me a blurb. And there was so much going on in your life at the time. And... Uh, your blurb for my book was just perfect. So thank you for that too. Well, I want to say, you know, I, I, the blurb, it wasn't a, you know, like a charity thing. It was, the book was something I turned to after, after we had our house fire last year. And uh, I was trying to just kind of sit and have some solace. I was telling you earlier and read. And this was a book that really, really made me think. And it really made me, you know, think about the ways in which I had raised my sons. And I have two sons. One is 19 and one is 13. And I was, I was 19 when I was pregnant with my son and 20 with my oldest, wow. 20 when he was born. And so looking at where I am now as a woman and as a feminist, um, you go back and think, what did I instinctually do? What could I redo? And so I loved this life history with with your son and I would I would love to know you know what really inspired you to think this is the way I'm going to write about this because there's so many ways to write how to raise a feminist son but this is so deeply personal um so it's this really beautiful history of your life together uh what what made you decide that this was the way you were going to write it um (laughs) it's so interesting that you asked me because since yesterday since the book came out I've been like oh my goodness, all these stories of my personal life are out there. So it's that the <laughs> memoir is like, you know, in me is just like, oh my goodness. But but um, I feel like I had to write it this way because I was writing a memoir. I was kind of, you know, going in and out, putting it away, etc. And then all these things would keep happening um, in the world, right? Like the Me Too movement happened and we were having these conversations about rape culture and dating culture and then, uh, and my boy was going off to college at the time, and it was like, hmm, this this thing called campus rapes. And, you know, <laughs> of course I knew about it, but we were just beginning to talk about that in society. And then there were the Black Lives Matter protests and um, so many other things, and the police brutality and seeing what toxic masculinity looked like, you know. And now the, the phrase has just become this loaded one, but really it is what it is, right? And so I would start writing these political essays that were also getting laced with my personal stories with my son, and those would get such overwhelming responses from people. And I realized, wait, this is what my memoir has to be about, or this is what, it's going to be an essay collection about all these things that come up for us around raising boys. And how could I not, you know, I was writing a mother-son memoir and so all this, you know, gelled together. And then the journalist in me was like, wait, I need to talk to other people. Right? <laughs> so, so I did the interviews. And then the academic in me was like, of course, there's a lot of research out there, right? And the feminist scholar in me was like, pull from all of this and weave it together and see what comes of that, right? So, so I feel like it satisfies all those parts of me. And then the personal parts are just like, a mother saying to maybe a younger sister saying, let's do this, you know, let's raise better men. Mm-hmm. You know? That's beautiful. And I feel like, you know, it's interesting so many times when people talk about feminists, they say that we don't like men or we hate men. 
Um, and I feel like there's such optimism and such love in the honest way in which you look at probably the most important man in your life, which is, is your son, and, and the way in which you approach your duty in raising him. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to you know, love a man as a feminist. What does it mean to live in that and act in that, while also, of course, loving yourself? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I found out that I was having a boy... Um, and, you know, back then in 1995, we were totally assigning, you know, mm-hmm. uh, gender at, at even like before we gave birth, right? So I was sad and I write about that in the book. I cried because I wanted to have a girl, right? Because I had really bad role models of men in my uh, family and violence, right? So I was actually scared that what's it going to be like to raise a boy? Is he going to grow up and shout at me? Is he going to be out of control, right? And But then there was this baby, mm-hmm. and I was like, but I love this thing. Like, how could that happen, <laughs> right? And then I was like, if I love him, I want him to have every... Like, first of all, I want him to grow up to be tender and gentle and sweet. And then I want him to be able to have those qualities that I saw men wanting, but not being able to have, like not being able to own or enjoy for themselves, right? Like being able to cry, being able to, um, you know, to express love and be be sort of kind to people and not see that as a <clears throat> as a blot on their masculinity. And so it's it was an act of love, and it was you know in raising a, and and that was like really something I was responding to in my son as well, right? Because he wanted to be sweet, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that was that was my love that wanted to raise him as a feminist and wanted to give him what feminism allows to boys, right? And then to love myself. Like, so, so you know, I write in the book about, like, I, I wasn't one of those moms that was like, you know, cooking for my son all the time. Like, he hates my cooking, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we were eating frozen pizza. I was a single mom. It's just like, um, and I wasn't being very doting. Like, I wasn't, you know, I couldn't help with homework. And and sometimes, I, you know, I was working late and he was managing on his own. So I wasn't one of those moms that was being too hands-on. Um, and I was following my own career. I was enjoying life. I was dating. Um, and all of those things... I think, showed him that women can live full lives and enjoy and be self-actualizing mm-hmm. rather than self-sacrificing. And now that he's, he's going to be 26 next month, now that he's a man, I see that he values that in women and knows how to, you know, admire that and want that. Mm-hmm. So. That's, that's beautiful. And, and I definitely saw that. And I know I've, I've always felt with my sons, like, that it matters for them to see me pursue my dreams and to see me, um, you know, own my space and to be protective of myself and to ser- seek out joy, you know, yeah. and, to, and to be a whole person. Yeah. But one thing, when there was one part of the book that really struck me that I had, hadn't realized I had really kept from my kids, um, and you had talked about having honest conversations about sexual abuse and sexual assault with mm-hmm. your son. And that was something that I, as a survivor, hadn't done. And it hit me because part of me was like, oh, I, 
even could I even now go mm-hmm. back for this relationship I have with my kids and actually be honest about that? Mm-hmm. But then I, I started thinking about how this speaks to many of the ways in which we really do protect boys mm-hmm. from the pain that patriarchy costs us, mm-hmm. right? Um, even while we try to raise them with these positive values, um, we don't actually, I think oftentimes we shortchange them and think that they can't handle it. Mm-hmm. But of course, we're handling it, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and we're handling the direct you know, result of it. Uh, and so I was, I was kind of curious about, you know, what was... What was it like to begin to have these conversations? Was it scary? Was it just something you naturally knew you should do? Yeah. Um, have, have you heard from other people about, you know, whether or not they should do that as well? Yeah, well, I didn't know how to do it really. Like, you know, it was, I was in moments of anguish when I would tell him, you know, I'm crying because of this. And I would say like, hey, some things happened in my childhood. And, you know, at the age appropriate time when he was 14 and 15 and knew mm-hmm. about sex and sexuality and things. And, and he would be, he was, he was quiet and he was stunned and he was like, oh gosh, that's terrible. Were you scared? What was, you know, like the, at that age, they can ask questions that are full of tenderness mm-hmm. rather than, oh gosh, I don't want to talk about this before that kind of masculinity gets to them. Right. Mm-hmm. So. And I write about how, like, um, you know, later I felt like, oh, God, I should have done it differently, maybe, because he did say later that, you know, at that age, he was a little bit alarmed about our safety in the world. And uh, so I felt, you know, naturally, we feel bad about that. Uh, so, I mean, I just feel like people can do it with the help of a therapist, like, how mm-hmm. do I raise these conversations, etc. But it's also... Now that he's a little bit older and he realizes, okay, we are, we're safe, right? We, I mean, mm-hmm. to the extent that anyone is safe, um, especially people of color and women, um, he, he feels like he benefited from it because he's actually, and his, one of his friends, a, a young woman, says he really listens and he believes, you know? Mm-hmm. And we both had this conversation and he said, we're just going to believe women when, they, mm-hmm. when the Me Too have happened. He said, what about, do we make any exceptions? And we were like, well, maybe Noam Chomsky? I don't know. Like, you know, and he said, no, no, we're not going to mm-hmm. spare anyone, not even Gandhi or, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but like talking about how this, this is a real thing out there and it's all over the world and it's so normalized, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you're saying that because it's like, yes, you know, Ijoma, go. Like you can have this conversation <laughs> because why, why are we, mm-hmm. like you're saying, we're carrying this. this, this happens to us, why are we protecting them? Because then we're not protecting the girls that it could still mm-hmm. happen to, right? Mm-hmm. And if they, it's like that the Chanel Miller um, case and her book, uh, Know Your Name, Know My Name, uh, she talks about um, the Stanford rapist and she talks about being raped and she talks about how these two guys from Sweden watched, saw the, the assault taking place and came and chased down Brock Turner, the guy. And it struck me, wow, these guys were from Sweden, you know? They weren't U.S. guys. Like, they were... Mm-hmm. Because there they talk about consent, mm-hmm. right? They've trained boys to think about what consent is. So when they saw this happening, they knew something was wrong. This girl was unconscious. This woman mm-hmm. was unconscious. So, so we have to have those conversations, and it makes them just better human beings. Those two guys were just amazing guys that came through, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I wish that, I, I hope that we can look at, you know, and this book I think does a great job of illustrating, you know, of how we need to activate young men and boys into seeing the responsibility that they have in society as social creatures and the influence they have on their peers, not only the control they have over their own actions, but the responsibility they have as active participants in male society uh, to really step in there. And so I, I really appreciate the, the trust that you seem to show in your son to be able to do that. And Mm -hmm. that's one thing I really do. I I really love about uh, the book is, you're honest and you sit with times where you're disappointed, you know, where, you know, and I've seen this too as a parent where, you know, you, you try everything and you're challenging and you're constantly talking about things and then your kid will come home and they'll say something and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what's happening? And you start to be like, you know, and, and recognizing that you can still have faith in them. But be honest and say, hey, that, that was disappointing yeah. and this is not okay yeah. and we need to move forward from that. And, and my son disappoints me all the time, right? <laughs> That's what I have to say. Like, it's never done. The job mm-hmm. is never done because he mansplains. Mm-hmm. I've told him, like, this is, like, you are mansplaining to me. Do not tell me how journalism works, right? He tried to mansplain how to publish a book and I was like... Don't even, you know, so, but that's where, like, when I say it, and thank goodness we have the term, right, mm-hmm. because Rebecca Solnit wrote something and people came up with the term, right, it's just like, when we have the lens, we have the language, we can turn it around and say, hey, this is what you're doing, and they get it, and mm-hmm. they can understand it, you know, and oh, know yeah. that it's not, it's not pleasant for me to be mansplained to, and, you know, there's, there's also humor around it, mm-hmm. you know, so. Oh, yeah. I remember my uh, newly licensed 16-year-old trying to explain to me how to drive. <laughs> right, right. And I was just like, are, are you kidding me? Because you've literally been in the car right. your entire life as I've been getting you safely from point A to yeah, point B. Exactly. <laughs> you know? but yeah. It's just, it's, it's amazing, like, how society comes in. And, yeah. you know, I say, you know, the society really wants to pull boys away from themselves. Yeah. And as a parent, you're in this tug of war, this constant tug of war. But I think it's that faith that they can get it. They are capable of pushing back, just like we are. Because the truth is, um, and I say this about race as well, you know, uh, black children aren't given a primer for how to navigate a racist mm-hmm. world, right? And how to push back against all of the harmful things that they're told about themselves yeah. and their role in society. And women aren't either. Right. Um, and we are finding ways and we're naming things yes. and writing things and working towards it. And as a society, I think we have to have as much faith in men. And mm-hmm. that faith comes with that responsibility yeah. of saying, I am disappointed because I know you can do better. Yes. And so you need to. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and that's such a, such a profound thing, right? To know that someone trusts you, you, you know, like you're mm-hmm. talking about trust, like my mother trusts me to do better, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I think it's with young boys, and but this, this has happened with my father as well. I, I'd written about this in the book, but I also posted on Facebook the other day that I, when I told my father that um, chapter three, I think, is about his violence, I said, because he, he wanted to buy a stack of my books and take a picture, and he was very proud. And I said, oh, you're not going to like it because I wrote about your violence. And he said, but my violence is a fact, and it's okay that you wrote about it. And he's apologized for his violence, right? And of course, like, you can't forgive everything, but it's, it's so huge. Like, he mm-hmm. actually has changed. So it's possible, right? Because, the, I mean, the problem is that we think that, oh, this is just a man, um, you know, this is what men do. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't agree with that, right? I mean, that's why, that's why we're writing <laughs> these books, right? That, 
we don't agree with that. We feel like white people are capable of being better. White men are capable of being better. We can change things. Mm -hmm. And boys, young boys are capable of so much more. And old men, like, you know, mm -hmm. you can still turn things around. So you can still turn things around, you know. Absolutely. And that's such a great uh, empowering thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, not all men on, are on board. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> so, right, yeah. I yeah. always tell people there's, there's a target market right. for these books, right? right? And we're, not, right. we're starting with people who know something might be wrong yeah. and, and the people who love and live and influence and depend upon yeah. men, mm -hmm. um, I think is important as well. And I think a lot of times people forget this because um, I don't know if this happens with you, yeah. um, but people will ask me, well, how are you going to get a white man to read your book? Mm. And I said, well, you know, believe it or not, we can actually do great things even if a white man never reads this book. <laughs> and I think, like, for yours, you know, you went straight to one of, you know, the important pillars of patriarchy, honestly, which are people who are conditioned to raise men in a way mm -hmm. that enables and supports mm -hmm. violent patriarchy. Yeah. And I, I love that because maybe you won't have to have that conversation right. <laughs> how you get them to read this because... Hopefully we will be able to raise them to read this yeah. and, and also have these conversations with our partners, right. uh, with our parents, with other men in our lives yeah. and set the expectation that they will yeah. engage with this. Yeah. In fact, a colleague of mine, a white man who, um, you know, uh, someone said, hey, that may have been sexist. And he I was I was amazed. Like he said, you know what, I'm looking for books online to see, you know, I want to read books on feminism to see what I did wrong. And when does your book come out? And I said, wait, it's about raising both. And I said, no, 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 you're right. Like you can read it mm -hmm. and you, you, you'll get something from it. Right. Because, um, and I've seen that kind mm -hmm. of change happen. Right. And so I wouldn't say that these books are not for everyone, you know, like who knows mm -hmm. who, who's ready for change. Right. Mm -hmm. Who knows who's suddenly lonely and realizes that his loneliness is from toxic masculinity, from being violent or being um, emotionally unavailable. All these things are making men lonely and alienated. I mean, look at all the things that are going on with shootings and stuff, mm -hmm. you know. The pandemic is just beginning, like we're beginning to go through the, we see the light at the end of the tunnel, and the light is a flash of a gun. Like, I mean, you know, it's so horrible mm -hmm. that that's what we get back to, right? right? Because that's our first encounter back with America and violence, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when people, when the men that are beginning to realize that are wanting these things as well. Mm -hmm. And I've actually heard from husbands of uh, friends who've read the book um, saying that they read it and they got a lot out of it. So it's mm -hmm. like, what? Yay. Yes. You know? Absolutely. And I know, you know, a lot of this, this is about motherhood, but the truth is, is that if you've already been raised... Um, you can still <laughs> look at this and learn and figure out maybe some of the harm that has been done and try to heal from that and move forward, yeah. which I think is vital because I don't think there's ever, there is, there is never an age where we give up on people yeah. and, and, you know, and on ourselves. And, and one thing I do, I like about this, I think it's important is, this is absolutely talking about how to raise a feminist son, but I think it's talking about it not as if men are the end all and be all, of accomplishment or safety that it's really about loving women mm -hmm. and loving people harmed by patriarchy and through the ways in which we raise our sons and I think that that's an important distinction right because yeah. I think like often when we're trying to say quote-unquote sell feminism to mm -hmm. men we it lives and dies in the benefits for men yeah. right yeah. and then the humanity of 
um, people who are harmed by, who are most harmed by patriarchy and right. most women and femmes and non, and um, non-binary people are kind of secondary mm-hmm. and where it doesn't seem to benefit men directly, mm-hmm. then they don't address the issues. And I find the same with race often when we try to like sell right. anti-racism to white people, then it lives and dies within their own growth, right. their own benefit. But this is clearly ground in love for women and, <laughs> and, yeah. and really that it is about our humanity right. and it is about actually you know, recognizing our worth mm-hmm. and making sure that we are raising sons who recognize our worth yeah. and not just, there was a great benefit in freeing them from mm-hmm. patriarchy. Yeah. And I would say, you know, if you're a parent of a, of a boy, you see how mm-hmm. incredibly toxic and hurtful patriarchy is from the very early age. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's also about, you know, always, um, you know, being firm in the value of women in our society. Right. And and that's why it also had to be about me living a feminist life um, and him finding the friends that would support that, right? Uh, girlfriends, women friends, mm-hmm. and friends across gender that he can listen to their experiences instead of centering himself, right? And knowing how to get out of the way. So, and of course, then people say, why would you do that? Because why would you disadvantage your son, right? So we come from, um, I was raised in a Brahmin family. I don't, you know, I, be- I get the benefits of that, of course, right? But I don't identify, that's not an identity for me. But I, never to deny the benefits I got from being in a Brahmin family. And, um, and as a middle-class Brahmin family living in Bombay uh, or Bangalore and, you know, his father being in advertising and we could have had a lot of benefits for my son, right? He would have been very different. I, I know that if he were raised in India, he would have been very different. But then, of course, the challenges of raising a brown-skinned boy in America, all of that, right? But um, I think, when, so when people say, like, why would you take away those advantages, right? And then you realize, like, wait, it comes down to how do you want to live your life? How do you see oppressing people or being rude to women, or claiming more space than should be yours as an advantage, you have to turn that around. Because I know that my son feels like a better human being. We have these conversations, you know? And the sweetest thing that our kids can say to us is like, I, I wouldn't exchange my life for anyone else's. Which is just like, say that again, you know? <laughs> just say it one more time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful to hear. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important, you know, when we look at liberation. And I think when we're talking about feminism and when we're talking about anti-racism, it's important to be aware of, you know, the desire to trade in true liberation for your proximity mm-hmm. to the power structures that exist. And so talking about whether it's, you know, caste and class um, in India or yeah. talking about race mm-hmm. here especially, it's important to remember that it's always going, there's going to be this lore to tie yourself to tie, and especially to tie your sons um, yeah. or your partner to these systems of power, mm-hmm. thinking that it will get you something more than you could get if you let it go yeah. in search of true liberation. But yeah. it's even reading your life story and, and knowing so many other, especially, you know, amazing women of color who have decided, you know, and oftentimes I would say for many of us, it's decided for us, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't actually have that much proximity to power. Right, right. Um, but whatever we have to let it go and say, actually there, there has to be a greater liberation out there. Mm-hmm. I think that 
it can, you know, a lot of times people will bill it as selfish, but it's an amazing adventure to actually be able to take your children on. Yeah. And there's so much adventure actually in, in your book. It, there are times where it's very brutal and hard to read the things that you have been through, but there is that sense of, you know, you making this amazing destiny for yourself and your son is, is the, first witness of all of it. Mm-hmm. What was it like to include like these earlier years? Did it change the way you look at it? Was it something you always knew you were going to include like these earlier stories? Um, I mean, you know, because I was writing all the time, I would write a few little snatches of something or an idea. I remember you you'd, uh, visited my journalism mm-hmm. class and you talked about write down, you know, about the pie or, you know, mm-hmm. like write down little ideas and you never really know what that was about because you make sense of it much later. Like, oh, so that's what that episode was about. So, I, like, I write about the being at a train station in Allahabad and being 22 and recognizing that as a woman, I wasn't supposed to be in this public space, you know, where I'm trying to take a shower. And um, so I think, you know, even thinking about, like, how we move as as women in the world and... Uh, moving to America all alone and raising this boy as a single mother and all of that, I knew that there was this means something, right? But I was just so busy, like, you know, with mm-hmm. this, like, right? Like, just so busy. You do, you make sense of it much later and recognize, oh, that train episode, the train station episode was about coming to feminism mm-hmm. and recognizing, okay, I'm going to have to take this on, right? Like, I'm going to live a feminist life mm-hmm. because... I can't see any other way, you know. So writing these stories, um, I think just reading more peop- more memoir and more uh, other women's stories has given me the courage to do that. But I also now feel, especially when I hear from South Asian women, right, saying, thank you for saying this because I can't say it. Mm-hmm. I can't, my family won't, you know, they'll be upset or whatever, right? And I feel like, well, I'm all alone. If I don't do it, who will, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also an invitation, like, come on, we can do it. Like, you can tell your stories because what's the point of, like, what are these relationships in which you're so afraid or walking on eggshells that you can't speak the truth of something that happened to you that has been so profoundly, uh, that has a, a profoundly affected you? And your kids don't know about mm-hmm. it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I've written it the way I have. I'm glad that I've bared some of the painful moments. And, and I'm at a good place in my, in my life right now. And my son's gone. So if I don't do it, you know, it's like the grandmother telling stories. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so did, in visiting these old stories, because I know when, with So You Want to Talk About Race, I put a lot of... Yeah personal stories in there. And usually when I'm writing an essay, it's something that I have processed enough to really be able to pull into an essay. But for the book, there were times where it required stories that maybe I hadn't fully processed. And it really kind of changed my relationship with these events. Do you find that it's changed your relationship with your past or or with your son or the way you look at your relationship with your son in writing it out? Yeah, absolutely. It has because, um, you know, looking at what came of it, right? Mm -hmm. That what came of it was this understanding of women's lives and how we don't have to say that, oh, this just happens to women. It's your lot, right? It's a lot. It's a woman's lot to suffer. Look, you suffer through childbirth, so Mm -hmm. you can handle the pain, right? Recognizing that that's what I was conditioned to do 
and then talking to my son about it, like whether we're watching movies and saying like, wait a minute, what just happened in that movie? Why was the woman treated that way? Or, you know, mm -hmm. um, having those conversations gave us that language so that now he can turn it around. Like, and he can say, I remember I was, you know, he was even in like sixth grade or something and we were driving and I said, oh, is that a man or a woman? And he said, it's a person. Do you see a person? And I said, yes, I see a person, you know. Mm -hmm correcting me and 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 much later of course as a young man being in solidarity with me and saying you know there was I write about how with my brother I was waiting for you know my family wanted me to forgive him and my son said well has has he asked for your forgiveness has he asked for an apology mm -hmm. has he sorry has he tendered an apology to you and I was like wow no <laughs> one even told me that that I was owed an apology mm -hmm. you know so Making sense of all of the things that happened um, now makes me feel like, yes, that this is like, you know, I, I had to write about these things and I had to, and not that these things had to happen, but um, this is what came of it. Mm -hmm. right? That's wonderful. And I hope that people can see this, especially when they read the book too, and recognize that those relationships wait for them and that, that feeling waits for you, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't write a lot about my, my kids yet, at least. Um, but we get these moments where you can see reflected the things you've taught. And I always remember um, someone messaging me and saying, hey, do you know that your son is fight arguing with a relative on Facebook about abortion rights right now? And oh I was like, God. what? <laughs> Did <laughs> he had all these facts and stats and links and you oh know he would and, you know he definitely I think because it's you know this is my job he does that whole both my kids do the whole uh, I don't I don't want to talk about any of these things right. because you're so annoying about it all the time and so it was so funny to watch him just actively in there just yeah. talking to one of his aunts and saying you know you need to understand this this matters yeah. the choice matters and and what they're doing is that they they're walking the walk right mm -hmm. like they're doing the work without claiming so my son says like i don't want to be considered a performative like i don't like the performative aspect right mm -hmm. like now nowadays a lot of guys will just say they're feminists mm -hmm. and they're not really right so he says i, I don't like that kind of you know, being highlighted as a yeah. feminist because I would much rather be. And and I think, too, like I'm sure you'll agree that as boys of color, as mothers of boys of color, are like feminism to them is just an extension of like the rights that are needed for everyone else, right? Mm -hmm. The humanity of everyone else. And I, I asked him that question, actually, that, hey, has feminism been harder for you as a boy of color? Because, you know, all the things, right? All right from the history of Emmett Till in this country to now, you know, that you're already at a disadvantage from in white supremacist culture. Um, are you also then, you know, asking you to look out for women mm -hmm. in general, including white women, white feminists? What does that mean, right? Like for a boy of color. And he says, I can see no other way because if you're saying, if you're fighting for feminism, right? Like if you're saying that women are uh, deserve a full experience of humanity like they are full human beings full of or entitled to opinions entitled to everything else right then then humanity itself must be extended to everyone else right mm -hmm. because then that's what you, if you if that's what you want for women it has to be available to everyone else mm -hmm. right so these things that, i mean that that's intersectionality at work mm -hmm. right 
And that's why your sons are on there doing that work because they recognize that this is all part of that, that whole fabric that is changing and it's worth it. So I'm glad that they're doing it. And Facebook is a great place to go have those conversations, right? Like, surely we change people's minds on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I, I either catch him on Facebook or I catch him, which is hilarious, in, in the chat function of his video games. Oh. And I'll have his, you know, they have their headphones on. They don't realize they're shouting the whole time. And I'll hear him say, you know, one more homophobic remark and you are, right. you are banned permanently from this group. <laughs> I know, write about that okay. in the book because Kishana Gray, Dr. Kishana Gray, mm-hmm. she talks about that, about how... Um, how they can do that, right? That, mm-hmm. that kind of solidarity in video game culture, because that's, that's that, that horrible after Gamergate, right. those were the guys that, uh, developed into the, the right wing, the Breitbart guys, and, mm-hmm. you know. So those are the spaces in which they can say, dude, stop talking like mm-hmm. that. Stop making these kinds of remarks, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's going to the heart of toxic male culture. So I'm glad they're doing it. Just like keep keep eavesdropping. Yeah. Everywhere, everywhere it can go. You know, I hope that we recognize that everywhere matters, right? And, and everywhere that we allow like this sort of oppressive behavior to continue to flourish is right. going to come back and harm us in all spaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to get to Q&A here. I do love questions. Maybe it's my difficult. favorite part of these sort of things. It is, isn't it? Because yeah. we can always chat later. It's exactly. Like, oh, we can chat. <laughs> uh, so here's the question we have here. It says, uh, can you please share with the audience what the term patriarchy means in relation to the discussion being had? What the term patriarchy means in relation to this. Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, today the way we experience patriarchy is in terms of um, really like the, the way structures have been set up for women to sort of fall into the same patterns of, you know, being subservient or um, being quieter in meetings, etc. Right. So it's not, and also know that we have to know that everyone is part of a patriarchal structure, right? Like we are sometimes um, asked to sort of serve it, right? That as, as women too, that we can be the foot soldiers of patriarchy. So it's not a patriarch, but this, this structure which says men have supremacy men will be bosses, men will be presidents a second time around, Mm -hmm. 2024 apparently, Um, we will still have men running and not be mentoring women into those positions um, or letting them take take their rightful space, not even needing mentoring, right? Um, So we are all experiencing it all the time. Um, And it's really, really important that as we raise boys to say, hey, that is patriarchal. Mm-hmm. That is patriarchy where you have men constantly um, rewarding each other and keeping these structures. You know, your whole, medioc- your whole mediocre is all about that. Read Idioma's book, mm-hmm. Mediocre, <laughs> for more information on the patriarchy, especially white supremacist patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So we're experiencing, it's, it's kind of almost like a fish trying to describe water. We're in, in patriarchy all the time. I experience it as, um, you know, even self-doubt in certain situations. But um, our friend Ruchika Tulshian and uh, Jodi Ann Bury, two amazing writers, wrote about how, you know, we keep telling women that they have imposter syndrome, for instance. But that's asking women to correct something about themselves rather than saying, no, these structures have been set up in such a way that we get you to doubt yourself so you won't step into 
you know, the positions that you can have. So yeah. I hope that's... I think that's great. Did yeah. I explain patriarchy? I, like, yeah, I think that's okay. great. Okay. I think I would also just add that it also has a set of norms and ideals for manhood that it rewards. Yes. Um, and it punishes things that deviate from that. It also defines womanhood as well yes. and punishes women who deviate from that. So yes. it's a hierarchy, but it's a hierarchy that you have to perform in. Yeah. And so there are so many ways it can harm you in your personal life, in your professional life, in our government, in our systems. Yeah. It really is, like you said, it's, it's really the air we breathe. It's right. everything around us. Right. Thank you. Um, next question here says, uh, what do you hope for your sons if they choose to become fathers? Oh, wow. I can't wait <laughs> if he does choose to become a father. Um, well, I would really hope that he holds on to his tenderness, right? That he is kind, uh, that if he decides that he wants to be a, st- a stay-at-home father, that he can do that and have a support structure of other friends around him that are choosing that as well. Um, and as a father and as a partner to be equal, to really recognize and catch himself when, cause I know that he's going to fail at some of these things, like, you know, at being an equal partner to a woman. Um, so to catch himself when he is not being, not coming through entirely, right. In terms of, not just chores, but in terms of um, emotional support and emotional availability to the kids, um, I had I had a lot of that from my father. Even 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 through all the things that were going on with his violence and uh, abuse and things, but he was very present as a father. So that's I would want that. I would mm-hmm. want my son to claim fatherhood as a space of tenderness. Amazing. That's, that's what about lovely. you. Uh, lots and lots of therapy. Like, seriously, <laughs> right. I think that, um, try as we might as parents, I think that yeah. patriarchy harms men in a way that often they're expected to heal through parenthood mm-hmm. and to heal through marriage um, in a way that is unfair to their partners mm-hmm. and to their children. Yeah. And so I hope lots of real serious work of healing before my sons become fathers. Yes. Even, even as try as I might to hope that it will be reduced. I cannot, uh, I'm not a magician. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's, I really do hope that they take yeah. the responsibility in realizing that if you're coming to parenthood and, and being responsible for another generation, that you have the duty to make sure that you are healed as, yes. as, as much as possible yes. before embarking on that. So that's, that's, that's probably what I would hope for them. So I, I, I know that this one here says, because I, 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 can, I can use context from the words I can see, but basically it's asking when writing about such personal top, topics, how do you take care of yourself um, in regards to dealing with trauma and also re- maintaining privacy in your life? Mm. Um, thank you for bringing up therapy because therapy has helped a lot. And this morning I had my, my weekly therapy and... Um, my therapist said she bought my book and she started reading it, which is awesome. <laughs> but um, I think that is definitely, uh, so personal topics, how do you take care of yourself? So therapy is a form of self-care, right? Healing from trauma is really, really important. It has helped me immensely to be much more present as a mother to my son and uh, and to rewire some of the responses, you know, because of all the harm done to us rewire some of the responses and just become a more loving human being. 
Um, and so that, that is definitely self-care. Um, going to the movies, having fun, like, you know, good times with my kid and uh, lots of television and friends. Because I've, because I've chosen to be with chosen family in Seattle, right? I don't have any other family in the U.S. really, apart from my son and some cousin, cousins in the Bay Area. But, um, I think, uh, that's been really, really useful to me. My community of friends have just really, really supported me. And, uh, they're there. If I have to call, I was like, I am nervous tonight. And like, you got this. And, you know, <laughs> my friend who drove me here, you know, um, I think that that chosen family is just so important and we don't have to suffer. If you're in a family where you're finding yourself silenced or you're suffering, find chosen family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I hope that people recognize that, you know, there is a risk always in living authentically, especially as a woman and a woman of color. Mm-hmm. But people will also be drawn to that authenticity mm-hmm. if you if you open yourself up to that. Yeah. And I know that that fear keeps a lot of people from wanting to um, protect themselves, to ask for more from, from people in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do lose people yeah. in your lives. Yeah. But the people that come back in and come knowing what they're getting into, it's so much more authentic. It's so much safer. It's, you know, it's, it's so much more helpful to get through yeah. life in general. Yeah. And those, those losses of people are really, really sad at first, right? Like I, my mother hasn't talked to me in three years because of an essay I wrote about in, enabling violence, right? Um, in my brother, for instance. And I talk about these things personally because once you start talking and you realize, like, wait, why was I silent all this time? I was trying to please people who were not supporting me in any, you know, in any case, right? And I was silenced and I was trying to support these structures that are not going to serve me. And if I'm going to do that, how am I even teaching feminism to my son? Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm reinforcing oppression, you know? So yeah, that, I think, I think we know when we can tell our personal stories to answer that question as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that privacy, in some ways, privacy can be oppressive. And in other ways, um, of course, you, you want certain amounts of privacy. And I can shut that off, right? I can, because I, I've learned to walk away from things that are problematic. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to find something that's intruding too much, I will walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. The next question here is, would you write this book any differently? If so, what would you add and or change? I wouldn't. I just wrote it. <laughs> maybe, maybe like five years from now, it's like I'm done with this. I cannot do. I cannot do one more round of edits or revisions. So no, I. I don't think I would write it um, very differently. I mean, I think I, I would definitely love to write an essay collection on living a feminist life, or you know, living just deliciously mm-hmm. um, in my 50s now, like I'm 52, going to be 53 next uh, next week, and just like feeling such joy at this stage in my life and just feeling like finally, you know, finally. I mean, there have been joys all along, but, um, but you know, so that was not for this book necessarily, mm-hmm. even though it seeps in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, that would be a different book, but not, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't change anything in this book right now. It's, yeah, it, it takes a little time. And I would say also, right. sometimes I think it's healthy to adopt the stance. This is what I have. Yeah, there are some things that I've definitely moved from or changed my idea on. But I think that books are also document where we are at the time that we write them. And so it wouldn't be possible to really right. change it unless it's right. just oh, I didn't give, you know, do what I could in this part. But right. I think that's important part of the process to realize it's not just documenting what we're writing down. It's also documenting where we are as writers yeah. at the time at that we are time. writing it. Yeah. Uh, this next question here says, as people of color, how do we challenge patriarchal attitudes embedded in our own cultures and traditions without breaking with our cultures and traditions? <sighs> that is so great. Well, um, I wrote this chapter about goddesses, right? Like I was, I was not, my, my family was not very religious, but we were, we were Hindus and we were, Hinduism is sort of like really uh, in the air in India. And I'd read all these stories about my goddesses and I did not know how much I needed them. You know, they were just stories to me. But when I became a mother, these goddesses, like just, I, they came and they were almost like, standing behind me and saying, you know, it's okay, we can do this, right? So there was Sita, this Parvati. I write even about Kali, who is not a mother herself, but is the mother goddess. And um, and Yashoda, who nurtured Krishna. So these all these stories from my culture became really important to me, but there were parts of them that I didn't like, that were very mm-hmm. patriarchal or that were, you know, maybe seeing women as um, only mothers, right? Like only uh, embracing motherhood and nothing else. Like what what else is going on in Sita's life? Mm -hmm. Like, is she going to movies? And like, you know, uh, so kind of just playing around with the the parts of your culture that serve you or that feel nurturing to you. Isn't that what culture is supposed to be about, right? Um, So just holding on to those things, but questioning the ones that don't serve you. Because again, if we talk about motherhood or parenthood or really any nurturing role in society, any role of change makers, right? You're going to, um, you won't serve the people that you're working for or the people you're trying to grow if you don't uh, embrace the things that nurture you. So in our cultures, we do need to walk away from some things. Silence in cultures, especially in South Asian cultures and a lot of communities of color, silence around mental health, silence around women and oppression, child rearing. We need to question those things. They're not serving us. They're not serving our kids. You want to be a fierce mother? You want to take care of your kid? question those. And I know that's not, not everyone can walk away mm-hmm. from things. I know that there's a lot of um, privilege in being able to, you know, get an education and be a professor and all of these things. But there's also, I was very scared and very alone and at many times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I only grew stronger from walking away and questioning certain things, you know. So I would just say, Try and do it in the smallest way you can, mm-hmm. but keep the the pieces that work for you. Mm-hmm. Do you do yeah. you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, actually, I was really struck when you were talking about the goddesses, because I think it's important that we remember that one of the things that society tells us that's blatantly untrue is that we don't actually have the right to form culture, mm-hmm. uh, that we don't have ownership over it, that yeah. it's something that happens to us instead of something that comes from us. Yes. And so I would say that one thing that's vital. Because there is, especially I would say in feminist movements, there's this pressure to, if you are a feminist and you're a woman of color, to eschew your own traditions for white feminism. Yes. 
And it's important to recognize that feminism, first and foremost, is about your ability to live as your authentic self, right? Wholly and safely and to, you know, be seen as a whole human being by society. And that also means recognizing that where tradition works for you, it is yours. And you have the right to say, this doesn't work for me and it's Mm -hmm. not mine. And you have the right to say what works for me authentically and recognize then that you are actually practicing your culture. Um, just, you know, the way that everyone else, you know, that men have always felt they had a right to do, right? If, if our traditions and culture didn't seem to work for men or they thought it didn't work for them, it wouldn't exist. Yeah. And know that we have the right to shape that in our image as well. And so I think that that's one thing that I would say is, is to work through and own it mm-hmm. and say, no, actually, this is my culture. And when people say it's not, say, why? Why not? This, I am here. I'm a part of the society. I am practicing in this way. I am, I'm showing up in this way. Therefore, it is. Yeah. Like, there's no arguing with that because yeah. you own it as much as the next person. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to model and to remember that someone told us a lie that mm-hmm. said that we don't get to shape the world in our image, yeah. but we actually do. High five to that. We're, we're shaping <laughs> our culture. We're shaping the culture that's to come. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah. All right. So one here, this is always interesting um, when I see a question, and I'm going to kind of move these two to get these are two that I'm going to combine. But basically, it's, you know, if you were looking at masculinity and, and had a, a vision for masculinity that wasn't toxic, is there one? And what does that look like, oh. you know, that you would want for young men? That's a great question. Um, I think being, you know, I've said this before, but just um, being able to be tender being able to know when you made a mistake and apologize. I think a, apology is such a difficult thing for men. I don't know why. I don't know why this has happened. Like, you know, I mean, I kind of know why, right? We tell them they have to always be right. And, they, you know, so this in terms of if we're being kind, that's where it's coming from, the pressure of masculinity, of toxic masculinity. Um, being able to apologize, being able to be emotionally present to the people around you, being able to um, take the backseat, be a good follower, you know? I feel like teach your kids to be ordinary, teach your boys to be ordinary and not always be seeking greatness, be leaders, right? Constantly taking up more and more space, being able to take up the space that you need and make space for others, right? Pass the mic, right? Pass the mic, get out of, get out of the way of women mm-hmm. that are succeeding. Know that this woman is smarter than me and she can do the job better. Let her do it and I'm going to enable her, you know, empower her and be her apprentice, you know. Um, those are the things I think. And, and, and then if you are that way, greatness comes, right? Like greatness is not about power and taking up space and being in these positions. It's about um, all kinds of other things, right? So that greatness may still be yours. Um, but if you can learn to be tender, you can learn to apologize, you can learn to be a follower and a get out of the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those are the things that I wish for our masculinity in the future. That's a wonderful image. And I, I really do hope that people watching will take that to heart. And I think that's a great way to end our conversation. And I just want to thank you so much for having this conversation and asking me to have it with you because it's such an honor to be a part of this event for such a, such a great book. And I also really want to thank Town Hall Seattle for hosting us. It's, it's just wonderful to be back in this beautiful building. It means yeah, a lot yes. to so many people here. It means a lot to me and my family and 
Um, and now this is such a huge part of your story of this book, to be in this space. And then I also really want to thank Elliott Bay Book Company. And I really want to encourage people to buy this book and to buy it from Elliott Bay Book Company. Uh, they are, you know, one of our local gems here who really, really does support Seattle writers um, and Seattle women writers and Seattle writers of color uh, with everything that they have. And I think it's so vital that we show up for them as well. So I really do hope that everyone buys this book, buys it from Elliott Bay Book Company. And I just want to congratulate you on this publication of such a a wonderful book. Thank you so much, Ijoma. Thank you for doing this. Thank Thank you so much. Town Hall Seattle presented this event with Sonora Ja and Ijeoma Luo on March 7th. You'll find the full event and other great Seattle area talks on our website, kuow.org speakers, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. <laughs>